0: Today's read, Asada, an autobiography, written by Asada Shakur, Chapter 8. After the village, I lived with Evelyn on 80th Street, between Amsterdam and Columbus in Manhattan. She had a garden apartment in a brownstone. Nothing grew in the garden but weeds, and it was where our neighbors threw their garbage, The apartment was one big room that we used for sleeping, eating, and living. It had a kitchen and a bathroom with an old-fashioned toilet up on a platform and an overhead tank so that you had to pull on a little chain to flush it. Evelyn always referred to it as the dump. She had it fixed up nicely, but it was just too small for two people, especially if one of them was me. I was a slob and Evelyn went to great pains to train me into neatness. In a small place like that, when just a few things are out of place, it looks like a hurricane passed through. And many times after a long day's work, poor Evelyn would be greeted with a hurricane, a tornado, and an earthquake at the same time. Gradually, I learned to keep things in something vaguely resembling order. The neighborhood for me was exciting, full of character and different flavors. Central Park and Riverside Park were nearby, and I immediately fell in love with both of them. Then, also, there were plenty of museums nearby. I spent hour upon hour in the Museum of Natural History and the Metropolitan Museum of Art. They were free then and full of fascinating things. There were all kinds of stores for me to explore and examine, Even though most of the time I didn't have any money, I was delighted with it all. And it was my first clear glimpse of the hierarchy of American society. 80th Street, like many of the nearby streets, was changing. Most of the changing, however, had taken place before I got there. Most of the Germans had moved out and blacks and Puerto Ricans were moving in. Evelyn told me that when she moved there, it was so safe she had slept in the summer with the back door open and just the screen door latched. On 80th Street, there might be three, four, five, or more people huddled into a one-room apartment. Sometimes the apartments were rented furnished with nothing but an old, saggy bed and a chest of drawers and a beat-up refrigerator and a stove. You could usually tell them from the outside. By the paper-thin plastic curtains shimmying in the wind. Most of the people on 80th Street were poor, although here and there were few renovated apartments that catered to a clientele that was a little richer, usually night people. 79th Street was directly behind us, but there was a world of difference between the two. It was an upper-middle-class street. Doctors and lawyers and a lot of performers lived there. Every day after school, I would hear an opera singer practicing. Maybe that's why I developed a profound dislike for opera. The people on 79th Street wouldn't dream of socializing with the people on 80th Street. They recognized our existence with a mixture of amusement, fear, and dislike. 81st Street between Central Park West and Columbus Avenue was even richer. The lobbies were elegant and the doormen were splendidly attired. They were, for the most part, all white and not even slightly aware of the people who lived only a block away. Farther over, toward the river near West End Avenue or Riverside Drive, there was a middle-class neighborhood. The buildings were usually old, grandiose, and well-kept. The people who lived there were mostly white, of course, with a few blacks and mixed couples thrown in the Upper West Side, as the neighborhood was called, was supposed to be a quote-unquote liberal stronghold. I have never really understood exactly what a quote-unquote liberal is, though, since I have heard liberals express every conceivable opinion on every conceivable subject. As far as I can tell, you have the extreme right who are fascist, racist, capitalist dogs like Ronald Reagan, who come right out and let you know where they're coming from. And on the opposite end, you have the left, who are supposed to be committed to justice, equality, and human rights. And somewhere between those two points is the liberal. As far as I'm concerned, liberal is the most meaningless word in the dictionary. History has shown me that As long as some white middle class people can live high on the hog, take vacations in Europe, send their children to private schools, and reap the benefits of their white skin privileges, then they are liberals. But when times get hard and money gets tight, they pull off that liberal mask. And you think you're talking to Adolf Hitler. They feel sorry for the so-called underprivileged, just as long as they can maintain their own privileges sometimes I walked over to the east side on the other side of Central Park if Riverside Drive was like another city then the east side was like another world English nannies pushed fancy baby carriages, they called them trams, through the eastern side of Central Park. The only black people you saw were servants or, like me, those just passing through. 5th Avenue, Park Avenue, chauffeur-driven cars, diamonds and furs. The Upper East Side was for the show-nuff rich. When I'd walk through those streets, Some looked at me as if I were an object from a museum or something. Once or twice, a doorman actually stopped me and asked where I was going, but I kept walking and looking. Sometimes I'd have some fun and walk into one of the stores. I couldn't believe there were people who paid that kind of money for things. As soon as I'd step in, the salespeople were right on me. Sometimes I said I was just looking, other times i would ask for outrageous things like pickled feet usually they would say what 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 and i would burst out laughing one time i went into a grocery store and was asked who my mistress was i was always crazy about art and made it a point to visit any art gallery i discovered sometimes They acted snooty or disgusted. At first, I felt uneasy and out of place. But after a while, whenever they acted disgusted, I made a point of asking the price of each piece. They would turn so red and swell up so much that it was comical. I remember hating some of those people. But at the same time, I wanted to be rich like them. Back then, I thought being rich was the solution to everything. Four blocks from where we lived, there was still another world, 84th Street between Amsterdam and Columbus. Before it was torn down, it was voted the worst block in the city. When I was a kid, I never would have imagined that people could live so bad living in some of those apartments was like living in a coffin i swear there was one building that when you walked past it in the summer it stunk so bad it made you want to drop to your knees usually i just sit on some stoop and watch the street there was always something going on men standing around with do-rags on their heads covering greasy processed hairdos making deals laughing and talking and looking at the women passing by, drunks and fights and drunken fights. The street was always alive and swarming with people. Survival and life were hanging out in the open, like laundry for everyone to see. Arguments, dirty deals, misery and malice ran out in the street like pus from open sores. There was something horrible and foreboding about the street, yet exciting at the same time. Little Bit, who went to my school, lived on 84th Street. Her nickname was Little Bit, but I called her Fruit Fly because she was crazy about fruit. I liked to hang out with her because she was a good walker. We could walk for hours without getting tired. One day, she asked me to come with her to get something from her house. When we got there, I couldn't believe it. I thought I had seen some messed-up cribs before, but hers took the cake. She lived in a tiny little pea-green closet of a room, covered with wall-to-wall roaches. I just kept staring a little bit. She walked around in that horror house like it was normal. She didn't even try to kill the roaches. She just brushed them aside if they got in her way. When I left, I itched and scratched for hours. When I met Little Bit's mother and started getting to know her and some of her neighbors, I got my first lesson in hopelessness. Little Bit's mother used to work in factories and laundries as a presser, but she burned her hand real bad and was on some kind of disability. She lived from day to day and from check to check. She was always sick, and sometimes her cough was so bad, I thought she was going to die any minute. She acted like she was too tired or too weak to do much of anything. They had a hot plate, but most of the time, they didn't even cook. They just ate sandwiches, usually lunch meat on white bread. Little Bit's mother never went anywhere except to the clinic, Or to the welfare office or to the bar on Amsterdam. Sometimes she would get drunk and start crying about some man she used to go with. She didn't know anything about what was going on in the world and she didn't seem to care. 84th Street was her world and other worlds didn't really exist. When I was with Little Bit and her mother I felt All kinds of things, sometimes disgust and anger because they accepted anything and lived any old kind of way. Other times I felt sorry for them, and still other times I relaxed and enjoyed them because they were so easy and down to earth. But whenever I hung out with them, it was down on the stoop. I would never go up into that house. kept my excursions at a bare minimum, though. She was strict and didn't play around. Every day after school, I had to be in the house by 4 o'clock, and she would call home just to see that I had arrived safely. Evelyn didn't want me in the street too much because she said the neighborhood was bad, and she didn't want me to get in any trouble, and she also wanted me to stay at home and do my homework. After homework, I read, I have never been too fond of television, and besides, Evelyn had an excellent library. Those books were like food to me. Fiction and poetry were my favorites, although I liked history and psychology, too. I also liked to read about other countries and about all the different religions in the world. The only books I never touched were Evelyn's law books. They were dry and boring and Greek to me. Evelyn was a store of knowledge, and she knew about a whole range of subjects. We were always discussing or debating something. Hanging out with Evelyn, I started to think that I was cool and sophisticated and grown up, and that I knew it all. You couldn't tell me nothing. I was just too cool. Evelyn and I went to museums and art galleries and the theater on Broadway, off-Broadway, She was turning me on to so many things. I started to view movies as an art form instead of just entertainment. I was learning what and how to order at restaurants. And my vocabulary and control of the English language was expanding greatly. But life with Evelyn definitely had its ups and downs. Sometimes we got along famously and other times it was terrible. Evelyn was super honest and she just could not tolerate my lying. I would try to tell the truth and try to be honest, but sometimes, especially if I was in a tight situation, I would lie. I had been in the habit of lying and it was easy for me to fall back into the old pattern, but it was futile to lie to Evelyn because she was a lawyer. And would cross-examine me until I would inevitably trip myself up. Little by little I got out of the habit but it was a long and constant battle between us. Our financial situation also had its ups and downs. One week we were rich and the next week we were poor. Evelyn was determined to be a trial lawyer and to be in private practice. Most of her clients were black and poor and most of the time they didn't have money to pay her. But Evelyn would defend them anyway. She was always up in arms about some injustice or other. I used to call her the last angry woman. But whenever somebody did pay her we were rich. We would go out and celebrate. For a week or so we ate steaks and lamb chops. Went to restaurants. Took taxis. The next week We would be right back to riding subways and eating hamburgers. Evelyn was generous and extravagant, and she had absolutely no head for business. I usually did the shopping for us since I was more tight-fisted and practical. Once in a while, I'd be tempted to give myself a five-finger discount, but Evelyn was so honest that it rubbed off on me. I was becoming so goody-goody, I couldn't stand myself. I really underwent a great change. Evelyn had great plans for my future. I was going to junior high school 44, but Evelyn wasn't satisfied with the education I was receiving. Junior high school 44 wasn't a bad school, but we were learning at a much slower pace than at my school in Queens. I don't remember too much about the school except for the music classes. Most of the class was black or Puerto Rican, and we all loved music, but we hated music class with a passion. The teacher talked to us as though we were inferior savages, incapable of appreciating the finer things in life. She lectured about symphonies and concertos and sonatas and the like in a snooty voice. A boy would mimic the gestures and expressions of the teacher and the rest of us would giggle and snicker as she played music. The teacher became more and more exasperated, saying, Listen, can't you listen? Don't you have ears? Can't you appreciate anything? I'm trying to get you to appreciate music, and you all act as though you're deaf. I want you to stop talking. I want you to stop talking and listen. Do you hear me? We got louder and louder, and the teacher became more and more disgusted. She would scream at us and call us names like hooligans or ignoramuses, and we returned her insults. We hated her because she thought the music she liked was so superior. She didn't recognize that we had our own music and that we loved music. For her, There was no other music except Bach and Beethoven and Mozart. To her, we were uncultured and uncouth. For her, Latin music, jazz, rhythm and blues were trashy and we were trash. She was a racist who would have denied it to the bitter end. A lot of people don't know how many ways racism can manifest itself and in how many ways people fight against it. When I think of how racist, how Eurocentric our so-called education in America is, it staggers my mind. And when I think back to some of those kids who were labeled troublemakers and problem students, I realize that many of them were unsung heroes who fought to maintain some sense of dignity and self-worth. Evelyn strongly suggested that I enter Cathedral High School in the ninth grade. I was not at all happy about the idea since I hated wearing a uniform and Catholic high schools had a reputation for being so strict, but Evelyn kept on strongly suggesting and I got the message. I didn't mind the Catholic religious part of it, though, since I was going to Mass regularly and I was kinda holy holy that year. I took the test for cathedral and passed, and it was firm that I was going to enter a cathedral the next September. I even started to feel happy about it. It was a change, and I have always been a person who likes a change of scenery. I usually spent my weekends with one of my girlfriends or with my mother as much as possible. Tony was cool she was cool to hang out with and she knew where all the parties were but we never had deep conversations so we never got really close Bonnie and I met through Tony and began what was to be a best friend relationship with an argument about Abraham Lincoln we argued for hours until Bonnie's aunt told us to shut up and go to bed since neither of us knew what we were talking about Bonnie lived in the same building my mother lived in and after that night we became close friends and talked about every subject on earth. Bonnie knew more than I did about what was happening in the world and we spent hours talking about Medgar Evers, sit-ins, freedom rides, etc. We began to write poetry about love and black people and sometimes we wrote morbid poetry about hate and death. As soon as we finished a poem, we'd call each other and read it. After a while, we read poetry together. Dorothy Parker and Edna St. Vincent Millay were our idols. We read everything they wrote and even memorized their poems. After that, we read all different kinds of poets. We were quote-unquote deep and were forever in the library or a bookstore trying to find another poet who was Quote unquote, deep too. The more we read, the more we wrote, and it came in handy in the street. If we didn't like somebody or if we had some dispute with someone, we wrote a poem about them. We made up all kinds of dozens poems and laughed our heads off. We were young and old, happy and sad at the same time. Usually every summer, I went down south to visit my grandparents. When they had the business on the beach, I loved it, but they had lost two different buildings on the beach, both destroyed by hurricanes. After the last one was leveled, they operated a restaurant on Red Cross Street. I liked working in the restaurant sometimes, but it wasn't as much fun as working on the beach. One of the last summers that I spent down south The NAACP rented a building a few doors from my grandparents' restaurant, which was a great source of interest to me. I was forever walking by, standing in the doorway, or sliding discreetly into the building to see what was going on. I could hear them talk about integrating the South by sitting in, praying in, singing in, and about nonviolence. I was glad because I surely wanted segregation to end. I had grown up exposed to the degrading, dehumanizing side of segregation. I remember that when we traveled from north to south and vice versa, we really felt the sting of segregation more acutely than at other times. We'd drive hours without being able to stop anywhere. Sometimes we would pull into a filthy old gas station, buy gas, and then be told that we were not permitted to use their filthy old bathroom because we were black. I can remember clearly squatting in the bushes with mosquitoes biting my bare buttocks and my grandmother handing me toilet paper because we could not find a place with a colored bathroom. Sometimes we were hungry, but... There was no place to eat. Other times we were sleepy and there was no hotel or motel that would admit us. If I sit and add up all the quote-unquote colored toilets and drinking fountains in my life and all of the back of the buses or the Jim Crow railway cars or the places I couldn't go, it adds up to one great ball of anger. And so, when I saw those NAACP people, I was ready to do whatever it was that they were going to do. But they were very confusing. One day I was hanging around in the office and two men were talking about nonviolence and self control. Then he walked around the room asking everybody questions What would you do if they pushed you? Nothing i just keep on doing what I came to do. What would you do if they kicked you? I'd pray to the Lord to forgive them for their sins. What would you do if they spit on you? I'd just go on singing. Well, that was just too much for me. I could take someone pushing me, hitting me, kicking me, but to sit there and let some crack of dog spit on me, well... Just the idea of it made me want to fight. To me, if someone spits on you, it was worse than hitting you, especially if they spit in your face. I tried to tell myself that I would just sit there and take it, but every muscle in my body, every instinct I had rebelled against it. The man continued around the room, asking everybody the same questions. When he came to me, I answered the same, too, except for the spitting question. I don't know, I told him. What do you mean you don't know? I just don't know. Well, little sister, we can see that you're just not ready. If you want your freedom, there's no sacrifice that's too big to make. Everybody looked at me as if I was some kind of stupid idiot. I felt bad. But I still couldn't get used to the idea of letting somebody spit on me. The man said I wasn't ready, and I had to agree with him. When I think back to those days, I feel such admiration and respect for the spirit of struggle and sacrifice that my people exhibited. They went up against white mobs, water hoses, vicious dogs, the Ku Klux Klan, trigger-happy, nightstick-wielding police, armed only with their belief in justice and their desire for freedom. I remember how I felt in those days. I wanted to be an American just like any other American. I wanted a piece of America's apple pie. I believed we could get our freedom just by appealing to the consciousness of white people. I believed that the North was really interested in integration and civil rights and equal rights. I used to go around saying our country, our president, our government. When the national anthem was played or the pledge of allegiance spoken, I stood at attention and felt proud I don't know what in the hell I was feeling proud about, but I felt the juice of patriotism running through my blood. I believed that if the South could only be like the North, then everything would be all right. I believed that we black people were really making progress and that the government, the president, the Supreme Court, and the Congress were behind us, so we couldn't go wrong. I believed that integration was really the solution to our problems. I believed that if white people could go to school with us, live next to us, work next to us, they would see that we were really good people and would stop being prejudiced against us. I believed that America was really a good country. Like my teachers said in school, the greatest country on the face of the earth. I grew up believing that stuff, really believing it, and now, 20 odd years later, it seems like a bad joke. Nobody in the world, nobody in history has ever gotten their freedom by appealing to the moral sense of the people who were oppressing them. Once you study and really get a good understanding of the way the system in the United States works, then you see, without a doubt, that the civil rights movement never had a chance of succeeding. White people, whether they are from the North or from the South, whether it was in 1960 or 1980, benefit from the oppression of black people. Those who believe that the President or the Vice President or the Congress and the Supreme Court run this country Are sadly mistaken. The almighty dollar is king. Those who have the most money control the country and through campaign contributions buy and sell presidents, congressmen and judges, the ones who pass the laws and enforce the laws that benefit their benefactors. The rich have always used racism to maintain power to hate someone to discriminate against them and to attack them because of their racial characteristics is one of the most primitive reactionary ignorant ways of thinking that exists a war between the races would help nobody and free nobody and should be avoided at all costs. But a one-sided race war with black people as the targets and white people shooting the guns is worse. We will be criminally negligent, however, if we do not deal with racism and racist violence and if we do not prepare to defend ourselves against it. Stranger, everything you love is from a different world. Hungry, you turn your nose up at my peas and rice.